Hey out there, this is Diane Ladd, and you've been listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here once again with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa, here at Earwolf. Our guest this week is an old friend who's back for a return engagement. He's a journalist, historian, TV personality, podcaster, internationally recognized film school scholar, and a critic, and the author of... Not a film school scholar, a film scholar. And a film scholar. (laughs) I threw in school. Well, we know what this interview is going to be like from the start. (laughs) It's a roaring start. (laughs) Yes. And critic and author of some of the most influential and well-researched books on cinema and popular entertainment, including... Of Mice and Magic, the Disney films, the great movie comedians, our gang, the life and times of the little rascals, Leonard Moulton's movie Crazy, and his most recent book, Hooked on Hollywood. For 45 years, he's edited the essential, indispensable, and greatly missed Leonard Moulton's Movie Guide, and he's currently the editor of Leonard Moulton's Classic Movie Guide, which includes reviews of the films from the silent era to the 1960s. But that's not all. Not by a long shot. I want a longer introduction. Yes. You'll get it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were still here. <laughs> he also teaches at USC, School of Cinematic Arts, and appears regularly at the Reels Channel and Turner Classic Movies. And he's the host of an entertainment and informative podcast called Malton on Movies, which features celebrated guests like Al Pacino, Mel Brooks, Tim Burton, as well as our friends Drew Friedman, Paul Williams, Pat Oswalt, and Michael Giacchino. And one episode even featured that titan of the silver screen, Gilbert Gottfried. God bless you. Please welcome to the show someone who's forgotten more about Hollywood history than Frank and I will ever dream of knowing. Marge Simpson's favorite film critic, our pal Leonard Moulton. I've forgotten more during the course of that introduction. <laughs> Than at any other time in my professional career, but it's very flattering. Thank you, Gilbert. Now, yes, thank you, Gilbert. (laughs) Here's what I wanted to start off with. Yeah. Uh, I when I think of all the movies that I've seen over the years, some that I haven't seen, loads I've seen in movie theaters, and I think now 
none of these would ever make it to a movie theater. Mm. And and movie theaters seem to be going the way of uh, like vaudeville houses. Well, some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. There's still a lot of life in the movie theater business, and uh, I'm not ready to uh, give it its last rites. Well, that's good uh, to hear. And uh, and because I'm Jewish, I couldn't give them their last rites anyway. <laughs> but but I really don't think it's going away. Movie going is still a social uh, activity. You know, what are you going to do Friday night, Saturday night? If you want to, if you're you know a teenager, you want to go on a date. Uh, if you're or at any age, you want to just go and hang out with some friends and see something. Uh, you know, for for parents, it's an escape for a night. You pay a babysitter and go to the movies. Uh, yes, there's a lot of temptation to stay home now. It's true. Uh, so there's no question that the competition has gotten ferocious, and uh, and this has really hurt the small movie and the medium sized movie. But you don't hear anybody. You know, the the week that. Uh, uh, the Avengers if Infinity War is open. You don't hear anybody saying, ah, I'll wait for cable. You know, they all want to be there. So you're saying they still show up for event movies. <laughs> See, but that's Event the thing. movies, tentpole movies, tent all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's like, I, I think of people who are stars now, and I wonder, like years ago, like Julia Roberts. Yeah. Could she nowadays, if she was younger, if she, could she nowadays be making these cute romantic comedies and having them put them in actual theaters? Well, uh, you know, it's debatable. I don't know. Uh, every now and then there's a surprise and something does break through. One of the breakthroughs uh, this this season uh, since summer has been a documentary, uh, the one about uh, Mr. Rogers. Oh, yeah. Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yeah. It's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful film, very emotional, full of heart, and it's a documentary. And it's it's broken records, so you know anything's possible. Uh, that's why I, I choose to try to retain my optimism. Well, you're in L.A., Leonard, so you've still got the uh, well, you've still got the Arc Light and the and the right and the 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 the, the Man's Theater. Where they is it? Grauman's now again? No, no, the, but the we're Chinese call the, it Grauman's the anyway. Chinese Theater. You've got the Egyptian. Yes. You've got the Cinerama. You've still got you know movie show places. We lost. The oh Z yes, we absolutely. lost the Ziegfeld and, and, here. And if you're lucky enough to get an invitation to go to a screening at the Academy of Motion Picture oh, yeah. Arts and Sciences, they have a beautiful, beautiful auditorium. I remember it. And and right before we got on the air, and this fits in perfectly, you were reading an article to us. If you could tell us about that. Oh, well, this is from, uh, I think, yesterday's Los Angeles Times, and it's about... Uh, Rick Caruso, who's a developer out here who's had great success building not just malls, but environments. He did The Grove, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of based on Disneyland or inspired by Disneyland. Even has a trolley going oh, through yeah. that'll, that'll take you to the farmer's market. Uh, and he's done one in Pasadena called the Americana. And his new, newest one is in Pacific Palisades, which is a very high-end neighborhood. And they've uh, uh, rebuilt, at great cost, a vintage movie theater uh, called the Bay Theater, B-A-Y. And here are some of the menu items <laughs> that I know Gilbert and Frank will recall from their childhood movie-going <laughs> days. Uh, vegan spring rolls 
with Thai peanut sauce and M&M's on the side, a Kobe beef burger with bacon and sriracha mayo, which is a great accompaniment to your red vines, and a brioche sandwich with sautéed shrimp, blended cheeses, and pickled strawberries. <laughs> you know, it's a whole new world. See, and but there too, like more and more theaters have like really plush seats and reclining. Yep. They're trying. And massage. Yep. And, and it, it reminds me of like the idea of like when TV came out, that's when they were trying 3D. Like maybe this right. will get audiences back. Right. They wanted to drag people out of their living rooms and back into the movie theaters. And it worked to a degree, but not really long term. Well, you mentioned the, the the screening rooms, Leonard, and obviously you have access to all of these, you know, to all of these screenings. Do you still want to see the, a movie at the snap of a finger? Yes. <laughs> By the way, that that Academy screening room is the be- the best sound I've ever heard. I remember seeing oh, yeah. a, a league of their own there, and I couldn't believe mm-hmm. how crisp it was and and no, everything no, about the it. Best. The experience it's was the pristine. best because they have all the all the movie professionals go there. Absolutely, they have to meet the highest standard. Do you would you you prefer to just go and see an experience like have an experience like that in a screening room, or do you still want to see movies with an audience in a theater? Oh, it do, that doesn't matter to me terribly much. Yeah. Uh, I don't mind going. There are these modest-sized screening rooms all over town yeah. where they have press press screenings mm-hmm. mostly. And some of them are, you know, maybe 35 seats, 50 seats, 75 seats. And uh, But the screen is a decent size, and you're in the dark, and you're having the movie-going experience. No brioche sandwich, uh, though. No, 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 and no pickled strawberries. <laughs> no pickled strawberries. Yeah, yeah. The screening rooms here are pretty good too. There's there's a Disney screening room, a Paramount one. I I mm-hmm. go I go at I'm in the Writers Guild, so I go at Christmas time, and it's a, it's mm-hmm. a different way to see a movie if you're a purist. Well, yes, I mean, and now of course though it's getting tougher and tougher because uh, this is not not news to anybody, but they're now sending out of course uh, screeners, right? Which is to say DVDs and Blu-rays. Uh, for the awards season. And it's very tempting to stay home. Sure. We moved four years ago to a new house, and my wife, Alice, said, we're getting an 80-inch screen, TV screen. I said, 80 inches? She said, yes, yes. We went to Costco to compare. Uh Uh-huh. 70-inch, 72-inch, 75-inch. Then there's a big price leap to 80 and uh, and I'm a cheapskate, uh, and I stood there, and they all looked great. And I said, "Really? Wouldn't a seventy or seventy? She said, "Eighty inches. It's got to be the be-. well." You know what? She was right, because now we have a better home viewing experience. Uh, but a crappy movie is still a crappy movie. Yeah, yeah. But there's so many movies that I've seen over the years where I thought. You know, if you never saw this movie in a crowded theater, then you never saw it. Yes, I agree. Uh, my daughter, when, when my daughter, who's now 32, was nine years old, uh, we took her to a Laurel and Hardy show on uh, Broadway downtown here in L.A. There's a wonderful uh, organization called the L.A. Conservancy, the L.A. Conservancy is kind of our historical society. They fight the good fight, trying mm-hmm. to protect older buildings mm-hmm. and you know keep progress from moving too fast. And they celebrate the remaining uh, movie theaters on Broadway every uh, June and July by showing 
classic films on the, in these classic theaters, the largest of which is the Los Angeles Theater. I think, it, I think it's 2,200 seats. That's a big theater. I mean, it's no Radio City Music Hall, but it's still a pretty big theater. And to sit in that theater and hear over 2,000 people screaming with laughter at Laurel and Hardy was just such an exciting and heartwarming experience. That's great. And it's something that very few people have, have ever known. Even if you go to a, a, you know, a good, funny movie today, you're not going to have that many people surrounding you, and you're not going to get that impact. And uh, we, we all make compromises. I will confess that at the end of the year, when I'm trying to get to see some documentaries, uh-huh. and s- some smaller films, some foreign language films, I succumb to the uh, the seductive experience of just popping a disc <laughs> in my D- DVD or Blu-ray player and watching it at home. You, Gilbert, you don't go to the, you don't go to the movies much. No, no, and it's like, and also, I've lost track of the movies that aren't the big blockbusters because that's the thing. I used to whenever a paper came out, I'd go right to the entertainment section. Because they'd have big pages of ads, and I loved looking through those. Those were the days. Sure. Now they don't have that anymore. I'm going to ask you something else. Uh, I'll bet you can tell me where you saw a lot of your favorite movies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what? what, I don't know what today's kids uh, say. uh, Oh, I saw that in Auditorium Six. I mean, is that there's no there's no attachment, (laughs) right? There's yeah. no right. nostalgia to saying that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can think of seeing Penny, uh, Herbert Ross's Pennies from Heaven in the, in, the, in the Ziegfeld. At the Ziegfeld. I saw it there, too. Oh, yes. I saw it on a snowy on a snowy afternoon, and I think it was one of the few people in the theater, and it's an experience I'll never forget. Don't you you agree that, that sometimes the, the, the theater, the, the, the day that you're having, the, the, the kind of, it colors the experience of seeing that movie, and it always stays with you? Of course. Yeah. Of course. How, how could it not? Uh, I'll tell you my most vivid memory. Well, there's lots of memories tied up with the Ziegfeld. But one Saturday, when Alice and I still lived in Manhattan, uh, we were curious to see John Schlesinger's film Honky Tonk Freeway. I remember that one. This is an elephant teen whimsical comedy that's neither funny nor whimsical. <laughs> uh, and it was playing at the Ziegfeld. Mm-hmm. So we went to like an eight o'clock show. This is almost like the joke, what time is the movie? And they say, what time can you get here? Yeah. We, we, there were maybe eight or ten people in this gigantic theater. We watched this lumbering movie. And when it was over, we went to the restroom, and then we stood there for a minute and said, wait a minute. If no one shows up for the 10 o'clock show, are they still going to project the movie? And uh, ultimately, the answer is yes, because it's, Advertised in the newspapers. You remember newspapers? Oh, and, God. Uh, and uh, and so if somebody shows up ten minutes late, you know they're entitled to still see the movie. See, but there too is like I remember on the train all these years, people would be reading the paper, folding it up so not to hit the person next to them, and mm-hmm. if they didn't have a newspaper, they'd have like a paperback novel. Yep. And now, none of that. 
no. is you, on track. You know what our fans send us, Leonard? They send us pages of newspapers from the 70s, the movie section, <laughs> where you, you'll see, like, you know, Earthquake and uh, yeah. Blazing Saddle, whatever was out at that particular time. People, yeah. people are collecting this stuff. People are very nostalgic about it, us included. And, and uh, I, I remember seeing, I saw Death Wish when I was living in Borough Park. And that was like the ideal time. Do you remember to, which theater? It. I don't remember the name oh, okay. of the theater. It was on Fort Hamilton Parkway. And But I remember there too, that experience was like the... Every mugger that he shot, the entire <laughs> place would blow up with people yeah. cheering and applauding. We had we had a very strange experience watching Death Wish, and I remember where we saw that. It was at a theater that uh, they tore down a long time ago. It used to be opposite Lincoln Center on Broadway. It may have been Columbus Avenue there where they sort of intersect, but uh, uh, it was before they built that new, the newer Lincoln Center. Lincoln Plaza uh, uh, Theater there. Which they now closed. Which I read about, yes. Yeah, heartbreaking. So so this this other theater, uh, we saw the movie, and then we, we walked home. We lived at 79th in Amsterdam. And we walked home past all of the locations where they had shot the film. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wild. Oh, my God. Uh, it was so, that's, it really creeped us out. We always ask our guests, we had Joe Dante on here, I know you, you had him too, and we, we like to ask our guests what their movie theater was when they were a kid, what the, what the local. For me, it was a place called the Cross Bay Theater in, in, in Queens, which I don't think anybody remembers. But, and uh, I guess Joe's from Detroit. He, he no, had, no, Joe's from Philly. Philly, Philly, Philly. And he, yeah, he told, us, he told us the name of the theater. And you, you grew up in Teaneck? Teaneck, New Jersey. Yeah. What, what, so what was... Birth, what? Birthplace of Ricky Nelson. Yes. Ah. Very good. <laughs> you, need, you need to know these things. Yes. What, what was the local and movie house? It was the, it's still in business. It's still the there? Teaneck Theater on Cedar Lane. That's great. It's been uh, sixplexed, I think, by now. Uh, but they're still operating, so that's something. And this theater had a, a feature which I now retroactively... Uh, despise, but thought was kind of curious and fascinating when I was a kid. They had an illuminated clock on the wall right next to the movie screen. What could be more distracting than that? Oh, so you're never really in the dark. Oh, uh, exactly. And here's, here's another thing. Like, when I, part of the movie-going experience for me was always, I love trailers, uh-huh. You know, tr movie trailers, I always, like, when a movie trailer came on, I always thought that was the greatest thing. And now they're having actual TV commercials in, hmm. in the theaters. That's been going on a while. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I used, to, I used to love trailers, too. And I still love old trailers, yeah. uh, which they show on TCM, you know, and uh, which I used to collect on 16 millimeter. And... Uh, I just loved them. I just loved them. And they had something you don't see anymore. They had style. They had personality. They occasionally used humor. Uh, and, and now every trailer is, is the same. They're all cut from the same cloth. And, and they act as if you're not going to watch them with seven other trailers. Yeah. You know, so there's a, there's a routineness, a sameness. Yeah. 
And I, I don't get the point of that. And if you've seen any of Alfred Hitchcock's old trailers, you know how he hosted them and had fun with them, uh, uh, as did um, uh, Orson Welles. Sure. Uh, with his great Citizen Kane trailers. And uh, there, there was a, Warner Brothers, what, picture this. You're going to the movies in 1941. That's before even my time. But you go to the movies in 1941, and a trailer comes on, and there's a, a vast expanse of darkness, blackness. And in, it, a little pin spot in the middle is a face you've never seen before and a voice you've never heard before. It's Sidney Greenstreet. And they do a quick, as I recall, push in to him. They reveal him, you know, full screen. And he says, come closer. I have a story I want to tell you. And he then promotes the Maltese Falcon. That's great. But that was the first time anybody saw. He did some silent films and supporting roles. But this was really his film debut. What a grabber. What a way to get your attention and make, make you want to see it. And then he did that for every other Warner Brothers film I think he was in. Fantastic. He used the same formula. Since you brought up Laurel and Hardy, you were telling me on email that you saw the new picture. Every, every now and then something like this comes along and you, and you scratch your head. Someone's actually releasing a, a biopic about Laurel and Hardy in, 20, yep. in 2018. It's not so much a biopic as oh. it is kind of a character study Okay, uh, that takes place primarily. There are a few flashbacks. We haven't seen but it. But it takes place at the twilight of their career in the early 1950s when uh, they toured the British Music Hall circuit. And uh, and they're they're no longer the big stars they used to be, uh, and they hadn't been terribly close. Uh, I mean, they liked each other. They always got along fine. Uh, their wives, and they each were married more than once, didn't always get along as well as they did. But uh, they're at this crossroads in their lives and careers, and it's a very uh, poignant and Charming film. And I will tell you, this is the highest compliment I could pay this movie. I, I who grew up watching Laurent Hardy every day of my life mm -hmm. on New York television and then became a, a member of the Sons of the Desert, the Laurent Hardy Club, and uh, even started the Tit for Tat Tent of Teaneck, New Jersey <laughs> uh, when I was 13 years old. So they mean a lot to me, to put it mildly. I forgot I was watching actors. That's how convincing John C. Riley and Steve Coogan are as these characters. It's not just the makeup, uh, which in Riley's case is extensive, but uh, you believe these. You're watching the real thing. How about that, Gil? We have yeah. to see. We have to see it. I know. It's we'll not opening until the last week of the month. We'll have to go on a date. Yeah, we'll go. <laughs> Right, we'll get the brie, we'll get the brioche and, and what the ginger strawberries right. or yes, whatever, of course whatever it was or 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 some hard boiled eggs and nuts yeah you know you know yeah, it, it, ahead, it's like to me I I saw that there was that Three Stooges movie oh, yeah the there was Farrelly yeah. Brothers yeah and and I remember <laughs> I will say I thought the actors were terrific in those they parts. did a good job yeah the makeup was terrific. I was convinced it was the Stooges, other than it wasn't funny at all. 
<laughs> well, you know, you can't have everything. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, Plus, our friend Craig Bierko was funny at it. Uh, yes. He was the yeah, bad yeah. guy. Right. I mean, uh, you know, to quote Betty Davis from Now Voyager, uh, we have the, the moon. Let's not ask for the stars. Of course. Well, well, bring, <laughs> I probably which, just misquoted that line, but something like that. Which, which brings me to my question. Why is it hard to make a good biopic, particularly of, of showbiz figures? And entertainment figures. I mean, I, I think of the Chaplin movie, which wasn't very su- successful. No, and no. If we really want to scrape the bottom of the barrel, W.C. Fields and me, mm-hmm. the Steiger That's picture. That's not the bottom of the barrel. That's, That's not the bottom. Somewhere, somewhere sliding down. Maybe there, Gable and Lombard is the bottom. There was the yeah. George Reff story sure. with mm-hmm. Ray Danton. That's right. <laughs> yeah. and, very good. And the Eddie Cantor story with Keith oh, Brazell. <laughs> with the fantastically talented Keith Brazell. Keith Brazell. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend, uh, an old friend, and I uh, have been teasing each other about Keith Purcell for decades. <laughs> whenever we find, whenever we find some nugget about his uh, CBS variety show or or some of the uh, appalling movies he made, oh yeah, during the fifties, well, we just we we fell over it. Ask, and, and ask I, Cliff Nestor off about him. I remember in that movie, he's Eddie Cantor. And his good pal Jimmy Durante stops over. Oh yes, the worst makeup job ever. Yeah, it, it looked like they they glued a hot dog to the guy's nose, and he's there like Eddie. How are you, Eddie? Let's let's go play the vaudeville house. Not one of the more memorable biopics. And then I also and this is a problem with every movie. But particularly bios are are based on true stories. And I always, one of my favorite is um, in the, uh, and also it's a bio, and that was the, uh, oh God, now, uh, Bobby Darren. Oh, Beyond the Sea. Oh, Beyond the Sea with uh, Kevin Spacey. His manager is John Goodman. Yeah. And at one point in the movie, he says, ah, my career's gone nowhere. And John Goodman has to go, what are you talking about, Bobby? You won five gold albums, six went platinum. You were nominated for an Academy Award. You are voted the greatest Las Vegas performer. And I thought, okay, let me write all this down. That's right. That's what they call exposition. Clunky, clunky exposition. Yes, clunky indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, there aren't very many good ones. I mean, there are always exceptions now and then. I just saw the Freddie Mercury film. You yeah, know, it's getting Rhapsody. mixed reviews. And uh, I enjoyed it. You did. I don't know how absolutely accurate it is, uh, but uh, this guy, you know, Rami Malek, mm-hmm. again, has convinced me that he was Freddie Mercury. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, it's not uh, uh, the deepest... Uh, dramatic biography I've ever seen but the music is great and uh, and it's enjoyable see I always I'm a big fan of those movies those TV movies there were a bunch of them all at once there was the late shift that was about Letterman oh yeah yeah yeah, right and they (laughs) followed it up with like the true story of Charlie's Angels and, and, and the true story I had, of Saved I by the t- Bell. 
I had a tire rotation appointment that night, yeah. so I couldn't yeah. see it. See, yeah. but those, I, I, when I sit down to those, I go, okay, this is going to be shit, and I know that, <laughs> so let me sit back and enjoy it. I'll tell you a good exactly. one. Exactly. A good one from a few years ago was Love and Mercy about Brian Wilson. Yes, that was actually a wonderful really film. Really good. With two great performances. Two great performances. But yeah. then there was also, oh, James Brolin as Clark Gable. Yeah, we brought that one up. And yes, Jill Clayburgh. Yes, yes. Yeah. 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 I saw that at one of the theaters in Times Square uh, on Broadway. I can't remember which one. They're all gone now. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. It was the Aster or the Criterion. Yeah, they're all gone. Uh, one of those places. Uncanny, the, your your recollection of where you saw all these things. Well, e- even I bad movies. I remember standing on the, let's see, the east side of Broadway, looking west, and those two theaters, which were neighbor theaters, with the largest billboard ever created by mankind above them, yeah. where they had the Cleopatra billboard for many years, and stuff like that. And in gigantic marquee letters, the old-fashioned marquee letters, I saw the words, Robert Mitchum going home. And I thought, what if you paid $6 or $7, and you go inside, and you sit down, you buy some popcorn, and you see Robert Mitchum getting on a train and leaving? Because that's all they promised you. Robert Mitchum going home. (laughs) We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcasts right after these important messages. Hey God, this is Pinky of Pinky and the Brain, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Gil and Frank went out to pee. Now they're back so they can be on their amazing colossal podcast. Kids, time to get back to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. So let's go. Here's a good biopic, Ed Wood, that Larry and Scott wrote. Oh, that's a wonderful yeah, film. Yeah. That's a truly wonderful, wonderful film. Wonderful movie. Yeah, it was made from the heart. Absolutely. And and you can tell. You can tell that this is not just a job for these people. Uh, for Tim Burton behind the camera. All, uh, all Scott the way around. Larry, you know, a wonderful cast. Uh, that's a film I really care for. And it's like they understood that he was tacky and not very talented, but they treated it with sensitivity. It's a love letter, that movie. It really yes, is. it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. And of course, Johnny Depp gives a wonderful performance because I think he captures what I think Ed Wood must have been like, which was a guy with great passion and enthusiasm, uh, an infectious enthusiasm that... Uh, surrounded his band of uh, comrades behind the camera and in front of it, and all he lacked was talent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've I've t- I've mentioned on this show before that I think that's a subgenre, which is the crazy dreamer, like Tuck, mm-hmm. like Tucker, a man in his dream, or or Herzog's Fitzcarraldo, or Ed, Ed well, Wood, are, Mosquito yes. Coast. I mean, they're all of a they're all of a kind. Yes, yes. Ex- I agree with you. And and I I think one of my favorite lines in Ed Wood 
is when he completes Glenn and Glenda and the movie producer that, well, a movie distributor says, this is the worst movie I ever saw. And, and he goes, well, my next one will be better. <laughs> Very nice. How, how's the Keaton movie that Donald O'Connor made? I've never seen that one. Speaking, oh of, speaking of movies about yes. comedians. The, the Buster Keaton the story. The Buster Keaton story. Yes, not not one of uh, the highlights of uh, Parade of Motion Pictures. Okay, for, oh, and okay, I, I can I, forget that one too. I, I remember when they did the TV movie of Robin Williams' life. Yeah. The guy imitating Robin Williams was great. I mean, he did a perfect imitation. But there too, he's sitting next to somebody... Uh, in an easy chair, sipping a pina colada with him, <laughs> and and the guy goes, "So, Robin, how you feeling?" And he goes, "Oh, I'm feeling wonderful. Here I am, sitting next to Robert Evans, the producer of The Godfather, <laughs> and I'm currently doing Popeye with Robert Altman, <laughs> who did Mash. And here I am in Malta. Here I am in." You know, uh. <laughs> they read the same how-to screenplay book that taught how to provide inf uh, uh, exposition in the clunkiest possible way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, even in the um, uh, the uh, Freddie Mercury movie, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, there's a part of the film where they they fall back on cliché. Uh, about you know, uh, uh, some guy in show business who gets too much too fast, yeah. goes to his head. He starts living you know, uh, uh, elaborately and extravagantly, and uh, there it felt a little uh, shop worn. Do you know Larry and Scott have a Marx Brothers screenplay, an unproduced one? Oh, sure, one? sure. They completed that a long time ago. Did, did you get to read it? Nope. They won't show it to anybody. Oh, what was, what was your opinion on the Hervé Villages movie? Oh, I haven't seen it. I I, oh. was, I missed a, uh, the possibility of seeing it over the last few weeks. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah. It, it, talk about cliches. There was like the whole movie is him and a reporter out for a wild night on the town. And the reporter has split up with his wife and is an alcoholic and he loses every job he's in. And then at the end, he he learns something from that night. You know, like he's a better person. And I thought, this is a really old one. <laughs> well, sometimes every every film of this genre potentially reminds me of the Jolson story. So, <laughs> so you know... <laughs> It's you know they just they just get back to the same formula over and over and over again, and sometimes it may even be based on the truth. Here's one of my favorite lines of dialogue uh, from the Benny Goodman story, ah. starring starring that great great actor Steve, Steve Allen. Steve Allen, who's actually somebody I I, I have I, utmost respect for. Yeah, us too. But, but not not a not a brilliant actor perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> and and the character actress Aileen McMahon plays his mother, his his uh, uh, aging Jewish mother, and she continually, repeatedly says to him, "Oh Benny, don't be that way, Benny, Benny, don't be that way," which was the name of one of his first big hit records. Oh, you know. So it's uh, again the, the heavy hand 
of screenwriting lands right there. Well, there too, in an otherwise good movie that they fall for that is in uh, the Ray Charles story. Oh, you mm-hmm. saw that, huh? Yes. Yeah. And and in there, he and his wife are having an argument, and uh, she says for him to leave her, she's leaving, and he immediately hits the piano and goes, hit the road, Jack. I don't <laughs> you come back no more. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock, in his before he came to Hollywood, made a film in England in the early 30s called Waltzes from Vienna about Richard, uh, Richard Strauss, the, you know, the, the, the great uh, composer. And there's actually a scene which I, it's been a long time, I won't describe it accurately, but you'll get the idea. He's, he's, you know, he's thinking, he's thinking, trying to get inspiration for a new composition. And uh, everything around him is making sounds. Uh, there's a, there's a, a washerwoman outside wringing out clothes. Oh. <laughs> the, the crank is squeaky, you know. And all these sounds combine, and believe it or not, they wind up being the Blue Danube. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I love in movies is one person will play two or three notes, and there'll be a guy over his shoulder or a group of girls, and after one or two notes, he'll start playing a whole medley and they're singing along together. Yep. And you go, yep. how did it get composed and written in a second? Yes. And the whole orchestra joins in. Yes, yes. Got, got, to, get, got to get that exposition. <laughs> or, or, not a lot of time. Have, or what you see on screen is like a five-piece combo. And what you hear is a 60-piece orchestra. Yes. <laughs> it's another another pet peeve of mine. Leonard, let's talk about the new book. Let's talk about Hooked on Hollywood. If you like, yes. I do. Yeah, I see you, have a, you brought a copy with you. I did. I got it on Kindle, which is not ideal because of the, so many great pictures. So I'm going to actually have to get a physical copy, but full of great stories. Hooked on Hollywood discoveries from a lifetime in film fandom. I mean... We pride ourselves on on doing deep research, but we we <laughs> we bow. We, we 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 are not worthy. I mean, the 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 you know you going into those vaults and 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 looking at at uh, at just it's 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 exhausting to read about how much effort. I mean, you, you, this show is a labor of love, but you talk about a labor of love. Well, I mean, so I always say some kids when I was growing up, you know, could uh, recite. All the baseball statistics for uh, the New York Yankees, let's say. Uh, you know, some kids got hooked on different things. I just became immersed in movies, especially movie history. And it's all I thought about. It was my hobby. It was my love. And when I started uh, writing and getting published, and other fa- and fanzines, what we used to call fanzines, mm-hmm. said today they would all be blogs. Uh, uh, to see my name in print at age 13 was very exciting. And then I published my own fanzine, uh, had a sort of a trial run with a mimeographed one. You know, mimeograph machines. Every reference I make is defunct. Oh, us too. Uh, obsolete. <laughs> yeah, mimeographs. <laughs> well, it, it's so funny. I think of all the expressions... Like, you sound like a broken record. Broken record, record exactly. Yeah, or, um, oh, God, so many things. Oh, oh, 
Don't touch that dial. We'll be right yeah. back. <laughs> <laughs> There's a million of these things that nobody exactly, will, which, knows what the fuck you're talking that's about. That's why we no, do no, this no, show, no, no, damn no. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to keep it alive. That's right. You you do some really deep diving in that book. And the last um, it's one of the last chapters in the book where you're talking about the history of RKO. Yeah. And you go one by one through all of those obscure RKO pictures. I mean, some of them mm-hmm. not so obscure. Mm-hmm. But the but the detail, I mean, talk about a deep dive. Well, that was not done overnight. I can imagine. Uh, that was uh that was a long-term project that I did for my magazine, Film Fan Monthly. And uh do you remember Willoughby Peerless, the camera store? Yeah, sure. Uh, there, there yeah, Willoughby's. Willoughby's was on, it was near Macy's. Yeah, it's still, I, it's, Second it's Street. Might, I think it's gone. Herald Square. I, th- I, I think it's gone, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Herald is gone from Herald Square as yes. well. Uh, there was an old New Yorker cartoon, I always remember, uh, uh, of a guy, a, kind, of a, kind of a shabby guy, uh, playing the violin uh, with a, his open violin case, you know, on the sidewalk for donations. And he's wearing a little sign around his neck on a string that says, moving soon to Herald Square. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so I, I did this over a long period of time. There was a fellow upstairs in the office portion of Willoughby's uh, who ran a something called Select Film Library. His name was Milt Manell. And he used to, uh, he knew all the uh, film storage places in town, mm-hmm. all the laboratories. And if somebody didn't pay the storage fee, uh, let's say, uh, they'd call Milt and he'd say, I'll, I'll take the prints off your hands. And suddenly he'd acquire a whole room full of 16 millimeter prints. He did that one day and got the entire RKO library, including titles that had been pulled from the library subsequently because of rights issues or remakes being done. So he let me borrow as many as I liked and I would, you know, screen them, make notes, give them back, then take some more home. And uh, you don't have to be crazy, but it helps. Yeah. Well, William Everson, who I also studied with at the School of Visual Arts, he he would mm-hmm. lend he would lend students his films from his from his personal collection. He, he was literally generous to a fault. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Sometimes Everson he didn't was get one them back. of a kind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and <laughs> lovely we, man. And the two of us were looking through your book, a uh, hundred and fifty-one best movies you've never seen. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is this one's from a while back, twenty ten, but great. And, and still, you, this, still this decade, though. Yeah, it's relevant. <laughs> now, there are some loads I haven't seen, and some I, of course, have seen. Well, there was um, Going in Style. Yes, I like that movie. Yeah. Very good. George Burns. Which they just remade. Yeah. They remade it unmemorably. I can the imagine. original with George Burns and Art Carney and uh, Lee Strasberg. Uh, Lee Strasberg. Uh, was uh, just a charming, wonderful film. It's wonderful. And, and, and what I like about it especially is uh, they've got these senior citizens, but they don't play them cute. Yes. Yes. That was the key. Yeah. Yeah. And, Martin, Martin Bress made that movie in his 20s. Yep. And I remember the music was 
You're a sick individual. Is that is that the way it sounded on the soundtrack of the film? And and George Burns says in it, he goes. You know, the three of us used to sit on that same park bench. <laughs> Occasionally, a politician would talk to us. Now and here, I get three square meals a day. Either way, I was in prison. Here, I have friends. Pretty soon, they'll ask me where the money's hidden. They don't know it, but they're older than I am. That's great writing. He gives oh, a real wonderful. performance in that picture. I mean, he had a, he had a, obviously he had a second career in, yes, mo- in yes. movies I mean, in the seventies. But he really does. He there, really no does. George Burns there. And he is that guy. Yeah, he's wonderful. And when I saw the new uh, going in style, I thought, you know, the three of them, you know, the, those three actors, Alan, Alan Arkin, Michael Caine, and Morgan Freeman, certainly terrific actors. Sure. But it's just not good. They didn't have the material this time. The the spark is missing. Yeah. Some real good ones in this book, uh, 151 Best Movies. Uh, Citizen Ruth, too, which Gilbert and I like. Oh, I love Uh, that movie. Terrific. Uh, We have Diane Ladd coming in here. If you ever get the DVD and listen to the audio track, the commentary track, Uh it's uh, the, the director, Alexander Payne. Yeah. And his writing partner, Jim Jim Taylor. Jim Taylor, yeah. And the great Laura Dern, who stars in the movie and gives an incredible performance. It's the three of them sitting down to watch the movie 10 years after they made it. Oh, that's great. And they sit, and so they're, 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 they're drawing on their memory and their recollections. And it's spontaneous because they really hadn't been together or seen the movie in a decade. Those are, the, a, those, are, those are the best kind of commentaries. Yes. Yeah, that's a great little black comedy. Both, yep. both Gilbert and I like that one. Uh, and also, the, uh, Gilbert hasn't seen this one, but uh, I'll recommend it. You know, it's it. a great black comedy. No, get the, out of here. The Jeffersons. <laughs> <laughs> Stop now. The Door on the Floor, uh, the, the, the Bridges, oh, uh, Kim Basinger oh, movie based oh, on the John Irving a, story. Yeah, another great one. Another great one to see. But it's also... One of, Je- one of Jeff Bridges' great performances. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about an underrated actor. But yep. you also mentioned Scarecrow, which is interesting to, to Al Pacino to and Gene and Hackman. Yeah, and yep. you had Al Pacino on the podcast, which I just listened yep. to, and and uh, and you and Jesse asked him about Scarecrow, and he and he had memories. He, his memories about it were vivid. Oh yes, uh, because I think uh, I think everybody who worked on that has fond memories, and uh, it was such a an offbeat, such a special movie. And these two guys, these two giant actors who had come into their own in the in the early seventies, here they were playing parts that were so atypical, mm-hmm. not what you expected them to be doing. And both Hackman and uh, 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 Pacino, and uh, they're uh, that's what stays in my memory is how good they were, yeah, and how they sort of grabbed you with their. Uh, uh, Offbeat casting. A movie people yeah. need to find. The, yep. the, the crows aren't scared of the scarecrows. They're laughing at them. 
And so then they think, hey, this Farmer Brown, he's not such a bad guy. Let's <laughs> not eat his crops. <laughs> and that was like the explanation that because oh, Al Pacino was living his life like he'll make it all a joke and mm-hmm. he'll avoid life and that'll be his way of dealing with everything. The opening shot of that movie is amazing. It is. It's it, it's a, a lockdown camera shot, uh, a two lane highway and a hillside across the, the road. And eventually you see a, a figure uh, walking carefully down that that slope toward the, the the highway, and and it just sits there and lets you take it in. It, it gives you a clue to the pace of the movie that's going to follow, and you're just fascinated to see who is this guy. It's it's Pacino's character, and uh, it, it's. Uh, you know, how do you open a movie? Well, maybe you open a movie with something people don't expect to see. Just, you know, an ordinary shot that has the the nerve to linger on one moment in, in this uh, little uh, offbeat slice of life. And And there's a part toward the end, I won't say what he finds out, but he's on a payphone and he finds out this important secret in his life. Mm-hmm. And Pacino there doing absolutely nothing mm-hmm. on the phone is like mm-hmm. the greatest performance. Yeah. You see yeah, so well. much going on in his face. Yeah. Now, th- now that's what I call, I have a new genre that I, I've uh, uh, invented. Do tell. The payphone movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 re, I revisited the King of Comedy. Oh, just last that was the year. one that came to mind. Scorsese's yes. you know, wonderful film. Yes. And they're always on payphones. Yes. And, on, and in Times Square and all sorts of places. And yes. what gets me with the payphone movies, how many movies have you seen where the good guy has to like rush across town and the bad guy tells him now every five minutes you have to call me and then it's a desperate <laughs> search for a payphone that works and he's and it's like yeah like people watching payphones now are going what the hell's that that's our favorite uh, <laughs> movies set in new york in the 70s involving payphones <laughs> It's weird to even you. You go back and you look at something like uh, Serpico, and there's a scene with Tony mm-hmm. Roberts and the Pacino, and they're on the subway platform, and there's a cigarette machine. Yes, in the shot with yeah. with the with the pull handles. You know, you uh, you might see, as well be looking is, at the turn of the century. I just watched another film that's uh, coming up for award season with Melissa McCarthy called "Can You Ever Forgive Me." Mm-hmm. I liked it quite a lot, and it's set in I think the, it's, I think it's supposed to be the seventies. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the early 70s. And and it's about a, a woman, uh, a real, real life woman named Lee Israel, who had had some modest success as an author and then kind of hit the skids and desperate, desperate to, to make a buck any way she could. She starts forging letters from famous literary figures. And she's good at it. She's, she really becomes well-skilled. Uh, this is, there are no spoilers. I'm not giving anything away you, mm-hmm. sh- you, you shouldn't know. And a lot of the film is spent with her going into these uh, specialized used bookstores and talking to the dealers. And uh, I was in a lot of those stores. Oh, that's great. 
for much of my life in New York. And so it reminded me, it rekindled memories and uh, of that of that era, of those places, uh, the look, the feel, the, the sound. You could almost swear the smell. And uh, I think you guys will maybe take to it for the same reason. Okay, there's another date for us, Gil. Another, yeah. date, <laughs> an, an, another date night. <laughs> you know, I thought I knew a, a lot about Pacino, but listening to that episode, great stuff. I don't, want to, I, I, I don't want to give anything away, too, but there's a Good Dog Day afternoon story. I'm, I'll let our listeners yes. go and track down Thank your episode you. and listen Thank to it. Thank you very much. I don't, want to, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but boy, he's got a, a, his memory of, those, of making those films is sharp. It is, and, and he was willing to talk. We, Jesse and I didn't have the nerve, we wouldn't have thought, to ask him about those movies. Uh, he came uh, because he was plugging a new documentary yeah. that, he, that he had, not so new, but newly released, on the making of his uh, stage play Othello, uh, and um, no Salome, I, I, Salome. Yeah, I think it was Salome. Oscar Wilde Salome, and uh, for which he discovered Jessica Chastain, and uh, she's got it right there. You can see this is a, this is a beautiful, talented woman. But Pacino was there essentially to plug that, and we were happy to have him under any circumstances. But then he starts talking about all those films, and we weren't going to stop him. We had a ball. He he just, just he was listening. downright jolly. I mean, he was just so yeah. happy happy to be there and happy to be talking uh, about he was, them. He was in great great form and fine fettle. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Before I jump off your your current book too, there is one thing that Gilbert's going to care about a lot, and that is that you got to interview. Um, the great Burgess Meredith. Oh, yes. When you were very young. I was something like 16 or 17. I couldn't drive yet. He lived up in Pound Ridge, New York. Uh, and uh, and, a, and a ho- I love people who name their homes. That's something I, I aspire to do. <laughs> like Tara. Time. His, his home, or whatever you want to call it, his compound, was named High Tour, after a, uh, a a play of the same name by Maxwell Anderson. Right. And I, I just loved that. I loved that. And he couldn't have been kinder. Here I am a kid. <laughs> I, I hope I didn't come off you know, too obnoxious or precocious, but I was a kid. And uh, my father drove me and mm-hmm. came in, into his home. And he couldn't have been kinder or more generous with his time. And uh, I'd learned by then, even then, that there were a couple of really magic subjects if you're talking about old Hollywood with people. And, uh, of course, this is 40 years ago, but or more. It's more than 40. We won't go into that. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> uh, uh, but I asked him about working with Ernst Lubitsch. Yeah. No one doesn't have a story about Ernst Lubitsch who worked with him because he was such a uh, a lovable man, apparently, and such a brilliant director. And one of the things he did was he acted out the scenes for the actors, which most actors hate. Mm-hmm. But they said he was so funny in the way he acted out, they enjoyed it. And they got the point of what 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 tone he was looking for in, in the delivery of the scene. Uh, he, had, he had just made the Batman feature film. Ah, yes. Yeah, and he said he was, he was kind of disappointed in it. Because he loved playing the the the, uh, the penguin, but uh, 
uh, and it gave him a new lease on life almost. Called, you know? He called it something out of Dickens. Yeah. Something out of yeah. Charles Dickens. That's how he saw it, yeah. and, which is great. But he was disappointed that the feature film didn't make more of the potential mm -hmm. they had. Mm -hmm. It was just a cheap knockoff of the TV show. Directed by the great uh, Leslie Martinson, who you also Leslie Martinson, who, who, you who also, I also interviewed. Yes. Yeah, we, somebody we wanted on this podcast, and he would have been absolutely perfect for us, but we didn't get him. Ten Let me tell you how I met him. I went to a, a dinner. They used to have an annual event called the Golden Boot Awards, and I was on the board for a while. It's, it was a fundraiser for the Motion Picture and Television Fund, who operate the, you know, the uh, the home and hospital out in Woodland Hills where uh, anybody who's been in show business, in the film business in particular, uh, can spend their final days in very nice housing. Mm -hmm. Or if they need uh, medical assistance, they can get that. So everyone supported it. And every year, I mean, the first year I went, picture this, within five minutes' time, I met and had my picture taken with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. Wow. Within I, five I minutes of wife, arriving. <laughs> I know. I said to my wife, that's it. I can die happy now. That's great. Uh, uh, and it was a wonderful, wonderful. Why am I bringing this up, though? The, the, the train just left the Leslie, station. Les, Leslie Martinson. Well, so just, let, me, let, me bring our, let me bring our listeners up to speed. Leslie Martinson was a director. If you go and you look at his IMDb page, you'll be blown away. By, it's not a page. How many things that he actually directed in his lifetime and died at well, 101. Now, back in... The days when we were growing up watching TV, you could read the credits. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. They didn't shrink them. They didn't speed them up. Yep. That's... So I found myself sitting next to this nice older man and uh, who I'd never met before. And uh, I said, uh, hi, my name's Leonard Malton. He says, hi, I'm Les Martinson. And I said, are you the... Leslie H. Martinson, whose name I've seen on hundreds of TV shows. He said, well, I guess so. That's me. <laughs> That's how I met him. But I only knew him from all those credits, which, which you know, sank into my, my uh, consciousness. Hundreds I of television so shows. I am so glad that you mentioned it, because I also remember you'd see the movie and I'd sit there and watch every single credit and they'd play yeah. the ending music and the same thing happened to me, though, with the Jerry Lewis telethon. Mm -hmm. uh, after a while, I realized, uh-oh, with Jerry Lewis off the air, we better go right to the local affiliates mm -hmm. so people don't start turning off their TVs. And what I remember when that they used to have an ending to the Jerry Lewis telethon where the band would strike up. You know, this jazzed up version of Smile. And I mm -hmm. thought that was part of the thrill. He'd sing the song, break down crying, and mm -hmm. walk off stage, and they'd blast that upbeat number. And I thought that's part of the whole experience. Of course it is. I also grew up I don't know why I found it so fascinating, but the Cerebral Palsy Telethon that aired locally in New York, hosted by Dennis James. Dennis James <laughs> from, from PDQ. That's right. <laughs> Dennis James, who was a genuine pioneer of television. Yes, but known as a game show host in my generation. Exactly. Yeah. He also did wrestling. He hosted yeah. wrestling. He hosted everything. And I got to meet him uh, late, in, late in life at the Golden Boot Awards. 
and and he looked great, and he still had it all together. And apparently, he used to go to different cities and do local telethons there. So it wasn't just New York, but uh, oh, it was uh, Morty Gunty took his place Sunday mornings. That's great. It was a live, you know, seventy-two hour telethon. I love someone these names. had to come in. Ah. Uh, why, do, why does that mean so much to me? Gilbert, help me. Why does this mean so much to me? <laughs> and, and also it hit or me us. too, like when you were saying you didn't know sports, but you knew about showbiz. And I was the same way. I, I don't know what team is playing whenever. I don't know a thing about sports, but I would know like, like different character hectors and... Bit players and makeup artists. Yes, he cared about Onslow Stevens. Yes. Yes. Well, very, very passionately. As, as, as one should. As yes. one should. Can I ask you a couple of quick questions from listeners, Leonard? You you can try. I like this one. Uh, this is good for you too, Gil. This is from Jason Grissom. Uh, based on Leonard's Marx Brothers entry in movie comedy teams, it, one gets the impression he doesn't see the value of Zeppo. Or didn't when he wrote it. <laughs> Am I mistaken, or does Leonard think Dra Zeppo drags the movies down? Well, I never said he dragged the movies down. I think it's just an I impression just don't know he's what getting. He added. <laughs> <laughs> See, we like the Zeppo ones. The Zeppo ones. Well, I, like the, I like them fine too. Yeah, yeah. And and you know what? I was just my friend Robert Bader wrote a. You had him on the show. We had him. That book is insane. That book is is incredible. <laughs> incredible. But. Uh, when they when Zeppo broke up the act, they were known as the Four Marx Brothers, and there was a period of great concern about what would they do. They wouldn't be the Four Marx Brothers anymore. Uh, you know, as it turns out, they did just fine as a trio. But uh, no, so I I I don't see the. Uh, I don't want to say anything nasty or negative about Zeppo. Goodness knows. He was. Apparently, he could do Groucho. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, that's famous. During vaudeville. Yeah. If Groucho was ill or something or hungover, he could, he could do Groucho. Yeah, that's one of those things where they say Zeppo was actually the funniest one yeah. of all yeah. of us on the stage. And you try to wrap yeah. your mind around that. That book by Robert Bader. Remember we had Robert in and he wrote that oh, book yes. about the history of the Oh, and I, I remember the there Brothers. was a story. Groucho was off sick. And Zeppo played his part on stage. That's the one he's talking about. <clears throat> and yeah. they said he was so good that Groucho rushed back to do the <laughs> next night. <laughs> yes. Did out you side out of mind? You did a commentary uh, for 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 the release of re-release of Duck Soup. Yes, I did for How, for the Blu-ray that came yeah, out last year. Yeah, that must have been a blast. And I, did, I did it did it with Robert with Bader. Robert. That must uh -huh. have that must have been fun. We had a good time. Yeah. And hey, the movie's like barely an hour and a quarter long. Amazing, too, how short they were. Yeah. And how they fly by. And it, it's like Duck Soup was the big explosion of like how great a movie comedy could be. And then after that, it was a quick fall. Like, I never liked a Night at the Opera. Oh, uh, see, I, I, I love that film. You like the MGM ones. No, no, I didn't say the MGM ones. Okay, that one. I said a night at the hour. <laughs> okay. I thought all the others, all the others are compromised in some way. Yeah, agreed. Oh, the ones after anything after, I mean, day at the races was already weak, 
But anything after but that has, was, But has great moments. Yeah. Yeah, terrific great moments. moments. Yeah. But anything after Day at the Races just gets more and more horrible to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to watch those. Here's one more from Buddy Spencer, and I think you'll like this one. If Leonard could go back in time and actually stop a movie from being made. <laughs> this is like, like one of those, would you kill Hitler? Would you kill, would you kill baby Hitler? Uh, what? <laughs> I love this question. What would it be and why? Well, it just might be the Eddie Cantor story with Jeff Brazil. <laughs> I don't think anyone would uh, would uh, censure me for doing that. And and you mentioned in your book the the nineteen thirty one Maltese Falcon. Oh yeah, that's in the yes. one hundred and fifty one best Which movie. I think is with Ricardo Cortez. Yep. Who was uh, Ricardo Cortez? Well, they wanted to cash in on the Rudolph Valentino Latin lover thing, but he was like a, a, a nice-looking Jewish boy from the Bronx. Jacob Krantz. Yes. Jacob Krantz. But he, he, he uh, you know, used that slick back stuff in his hair, brilliantine, whatever they were called. Oh, yes. It. Brilliantine, yeah. Yeah, and he was a good-looking man. But in the 30s, he became more of a character actor. And uh, and he plays a Jewish role in, I think, Symphony of Six Million, which is an interesting RKO movie. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I liked him. But the funnier part was that once he changed his name, his brother, who wanted to be a cameraman, as they called him in those days, not cinematographer. Ah, uh, yes. Cam cameraman. And so he became Stanley Cortez. And that's the man who shot, you know, uh, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons and uh, the Night of the, the Hunter for Charles Gee. Long. Wow. Became one of the great cameramen, but he was Stanley Krantz. But you know what gets me? When I watched the Ricardo Cortez Maltese Falcon, mm -hmm. I thought I, I didn't like it that much, mm -hmm. but I remember thinking... It's almost exact to the classic Humphrey Bogart version that would come yeah. years later. And how come the Humphrey Bogart version is so much more powerful? Well, it had a better director, John Huston, making his directing debut. He also did the screenplay. But like the, 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 the people who wrote and directed the, the 1931 version, they stuck to the book. That's why they're so similar. They're, they're really just using Dashiell Hammett's, you know, uh, narrative and dialogue. The, I thought when I saw the 31 version, which I saw like you, you know, long after I'd memorized the 41 movie, uh, I thought, well, who could possibly play Casper Gutman? Who could possibly take the place of uh, Elisha Cook Jr.? Well, I think they cast those roles really well because the Gunsel who we know is Elisha Cook Jr. Dwight is played Fry. By Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry, yes. 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 Uh, I mean, if you wanted a creepy guy, you couldn't do better than that. Yes. And yeah. Dudley Diggs, who's a familiar character actor, is very good as Casper Gutman. I mean, you know, and B.B. Daniels is a very good uh, uh, leading lady. And and the, the, the 31 version was pre-code. So it's That's got right. a little more sexual tension in it. And some implications of things going on that they don't actually show. 
and uh, I think it's an interesting film. Hey, Gil, since uh, Leonard's talking about Sidney Greenstreet and Maltese Falcon, favor him a little bit. Give him a little uh, taste. <clears throat> no, it's you who bundled it. You at your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin the found out how valuable it was. No wonder he had such an easy time finding it. You imbecile! You blundering fathead! <laughs> Bravo! <laughs> Bravo! Is that perfect? It he, is perfect. He does Sydney Green Street too. Yeah. Hmm. I, I enjoy talking to a man who enjoys the talk. <laughs> I just I distrust closed mouth men. They usually say too much at the wrong time. <laughs> beautiful. It keeps me entertained, Leonard. With with that that the Bogard Maltese Falcon, when I look at everyone in that, I think if someone were to say to me, who was Tell me quickly who Humphrey Bogart, Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, and Elisha Cook were. I go just watch that movie, yeah. and it'll it'll they were all at their best. I got to interview Elisha Cook once, wow. just briefly, wow. just briefly, and uh, I said because you know he turns up in late thirties movies playing uh, college freshman, you know all sorts of yeah, innocuous sitcom parts. career too in the seventies, yeah. And uh, and I said, uh, uh, did it bother you that after uh, playing Wilmer in the Maltese Falcon, you were almost exclusively cast as weirdos and wackos? He said, nah, it's more fun playing pricks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you were talking about the Maltese Falcon and the Sydney Greenstreet speech. And I remember I when I saw the Maltese Falcon, I thought... If I were to make a trailer, it was this one line in the Maltese Falcon where uh, Sidney Greenstreet says, "If oh, he goes, I love Wilma. I, oh, I, I love Wilma like a son. But if you lose a son, you can always get another one. But yes, there's, there's only, only one. one Maltese Falcon. And I thought, that line, what a line would have been the entire trailer if I made it. <laughs> what a line. Everybody in that film is so good. Lee Patrick as Effie, the secretary. Oh, yeah. Mary Astor. Yes. Mary Astor is, has never been better. What a great, great. I mean, she's playing a woman who is deceitful. And so she has to be uh, convincing enough to let Bogart fall for her line for, for at least a little while. But she has to convey in some way that she's not telling the truth. It's one of those movies that just makes you happy to be alive. Oh, Barton McLean, Ward Barton Bond. McLean. Yes. Jer <laughs> Jerome Cowan. Yes. What a cast. And, and a Jerome tiny Cowan. appearance by um, Walter Houston. Walter Houston. Yes. 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 yes, yes, yes. And I heard that Marie Astor, Mary Astor, rather, Mary Astor uh, would like run before some of her scenes, so she'd be out of breath when she was talking to him to get that nervous, uh, oh scared That's performance. Great. That's great. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. A wonderful movie that everybody oh. needs to see several times. And I heard as also as a joke, Bogart and Peter Lorre used to walk out of, sneak into Mary Astor's dressing room <laughs> and then walk out zipping their flies up. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a clunk- those were the days. This, a clunky segue, but Leonard, in the in the little time that we have left, we have to talk about our mutual friend James. James well, Karen. Jimmy Jimmy Karen. Uh, little did I dream when I uh, grew up watching this uh, uh, pleasant man. Uh, who is the spokesperson for Pathmark Supermarkets. <laughs> yes, indeed. That's where uh, most of us know. Where we, where we yeah, first saw him. And uh, that I would uh, get to know him and, and become a close friend. Uh, uh, he and his wife, Alba, are, are very close to all of my family, my wife, Alice, my daughter, Jessie. And uh, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're sad for Alba, really, because she's lost her, her soulmate, and we're sad for us because no more stories from Jimmy. And uh, and he had lots of them. Boy, did he have lots of them. He was a working actor uh, who came to New York from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, and, uh, you know, hung out with Marlon Brando in the 40s, uh, was at the actor studio when Marilyn Monroe was there in the 50s. Uh, he did so many things and he was a very social, he collected people. He, he, you know, he, he acquired new friends anywhere he was and anywhere he was working. And, uh, <laughs> here's a, this is off out of the blue. He f- did a guest shot on Hawaii Five O. <laughs> so, so they fly him to, to Hawaii and he's sitting in the, uh, in a car, police car with, uh, um, the co-stars of the show, and I don't, I'm not going to get all their names right, so I won't do it at all. But you all know who the other guys were. Oh, Cam Fong and those guys, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, uh, Jack Lord, uh, who was in the driver's seat, gets up and gets out of the car for a while while they're waiting to set up the next shot. And uh, Jimmy says to the other actor, "Oh, James MacArthur. James, James MacArthur right, was right. there." So Jimmy says to MacArthur and some of the other guys, so, because he's a very social guy. So uh, how are things, you know, uh, how long you've been on the show? And, you know, what do you do? Do you live here full time? And, and they're being very reticent. They're very reticent. And, and, and he, he said, is something wrong? And they said, we're not allowed to talk when Jack is in the car. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Now you oh told, my God! You told me a story how like the son of the head of Pathmark. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I guess the statute of limitations has passed, <laughs> and, and, Jim, and Jimmy's gone. So I'll tell this story without comment or embellishment. Okay. But he wound up working for them for thirty years. At one point, they were going to get rid of him, and then they did uh, some some uh, testing and surveying. And found that he was the most recognizable man in New York television. Because, uh, let's face it, the news anchor on Channel 4 is only on Channel 4. Sure. The one on Channel 11 is only on Channel 11. Jimmy was on all the channels, speaking for Pathmark all those years. So, they, this, this, that was his first near, uh, uh, near miss. They had to re-sign him. But then the son of, uh, the, I think, the chairman of Pathmark Stores, I don't want to impugn the wrong person here, was kind of a smart ass. And he said to Jimmy one day when they were shooting in the autumn, I think, uh, you know, man, uh, this is probably the last cycle that we'll have you doing these. Jim said, well, you know, I know nothing lasts forever, you know, but uh, can I ask you why? And the guy says, why? He says, look in the mirror, man. You're old. And Jimmy said, well, I hope you die of cancer. 
without missing a beat. Without missing a beat, that's what he responded. <laughs> now, the oh way- my God, I, he's such a nice man. You don't even you don't even imagine that coming out of him. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> and that's what makes it funny. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a movie in L.A. And the director knew I was crazy about old Hollywood. And he goes, well, you're going to be working tomorrow with this actor, James Karen, who I think you two will get along with. Great. And I didn't know the name at the time. The minute I saw him, it was, oh, oh, that guy. Yeah. And then it was the minute we started talking. It's like we knew each other for 20 years. Yes, that's that's how he was. And he uh, then after that, like. When I sometimes I'd call him or he'd call me, and it was always the same greeting. He would always go, "Well, hello, my boy." Yes, <laughs> yes. He was he was just a a, a sweetheart of a guy. And, uh, I'll tell you, and he came from show business stock. Good, good, good uh, yes, indeed, good bloodlines, uh, and that came up when I was at the TCM Classic Film Festival. This is maybe four. Five years ago, tops, and they had succeeded in finding and flying over Peggy Cummins, the leading lady of Gun, Gun Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, I love that one. And she was still a beautiful woman. And uh, so we all watched Eddie Muller, the Czar of Noir, interviewed her on stage at the Egyptian. No, at the maybe it was the Egyptian Theater, and then. Uh, we left midway through the movie because we were all going to have dinner. So uh, she she said to me, I happened to be in stride with her crossing Hollywood Boulevard. And she said, who is that that nice man, that interesting man who was just talking to me? I said, well, his name is James Karen, uh, Jimmy Karen. I said, he's a working actor, character actor. I said, in fact, his, his uncle was uh, Morris Karnofsky. Uh, great star of the Yiddish theater and 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 Broadway as well, and she she looked at me. She said, "Well, he's in our movie, isn't he? He plays the judge. Morris Karnofsky plays the judge at the beginning of Gun Crazy. How about that? Ah, so I mean, you know what? You know, uh, great there connection. Are only six people. There are only six connections in life. I right? met, I, I I learned so much about him too from your tribute from the tribute on your website. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that he was friends with George Clooney and Morgan Freeman and Oliver Stein. I know he, as you say, he collected yes. people. He collected, yeah. he collected friendships. But uh, he and did. Our friend Richard Kind, uh, obviously, too, was 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 close to him. But and I didn't know the Brian Singer story, which is a which is a touching uh, story that he did that, that he did I mean, that for a kid that he gave a kid a you yeah, know yeah yeah yeah. There was this talented kid uh, going to the USC film school. And uh, uh, asked Jimmy to be to play a part in his, one of his student films, and he did. And being social again, Jimmy struck up conversations with him and got to know him a little bit, and learned that apparently Brian's parents uh, were not supportive of him going into this field. So Jimmy took it upon himself to handwrite a letter to Brian Singer's uh, mom and dad to say that he thought that Brian had a lot of talent. And that he wasn't wasting his time or going off, uh, you know, on a on a on a wild goose chase. That he could really succeed uh, in the film world, and and it made a difference. Wow! It made a difference. What a nice thing to have done. 
Mm-hmm. And and I remember he always when we talk on the phone he'd oh he he would always say to me oh and tell your wife she has all of my sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> he knew and, how to deliver a line. He did. And I went went to his house and and a thing when guests went to his house yeah. was he owned one of Buster Keaton's hats. Yep. And he sure. would take a picture of them wearing Buster Keaton's hat. Yep. He was he, very close to Buster's widow, Eleanor, and uh, was a devoted friend to her, and she to him. Yeah, and what and, he did for Keaton, too, at, at, that, at that point in his life, was also generous. And, and oh, here's, yes. Here's, here's another story. A co- <laughs> one story that James Caron always told me to shut up. When I was on the podcast. We can always cut it out. Go yes. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he said when he was doing, um, uh, you know, every any given Sunday mm-hmm. with Al Pacino and uh, Cameron, Cameron Diaz. Diaz, that Cameron Diaz one time came in and said, oh, my breast feels so sore. And she said, Jimmy, would you rub my breast for me? And, and he rubbed Cameron Diaz's breasts. And I always thought, boy, if if that were me, I'd be I'd make sure everybody knew that story. <laughs> that's the that's the well, one he didn't want you story. to tell on yes, the podcast. Because yes. hey, he now said, I'm insulted. He never told me that story. Because yeah, I said, tell the Cameron Diaz story, and he said, I don't want to hear her name out of your lips. <laughs> <laughs> I called him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, he had never signed a release form for this show, Leonard, uh-huh. and my wife found it in, in doing the paperwork. And I said, oh, good, an excuse to call James. <laughs> and I called him, and Alba got on the phone, and we talked. And boy, Gilbert, does he, did he love you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, it was, and I, I, I really feel blessed that I got to talk to him. Yeah, uh, well, one, I feel the same. One last time. He, he really he, uh, he brightened everybody's life. And his, he did. And there's those last days... His voice was exactly the same. Sounded the same to me. And still bright and energetic. I know. The the weird part is, and George Clooney referred to this when he accepted his AFI uh, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award this past spring. Uh, He opened his speech, actually, Clooney did, by talking about his good friend, Jimmy Caron, Ah. and how a couple of years ago, it looked like he was uh, headed toward death. We remember. Uh, and in fact, Alba had uh, put him in hospice care. Uh, and, uh, and, and so she asked me on his behalf to write an obit and make sure it was accurate. I said, I will. And she gave me a couple of names of people who might reach out with some quotes, you know, for the obit. Uh, and uh, so my wife picked up the phone one morning and it was Morgan Freeman on the phone. Oh. That, now, that doesn't happen every day. No. <laughs> uh, except maybe if you're his agent or something. And, uh, and, he, and I got on the phone with him, and he couldn't have been sweeter. Well, I will uh, very, uh, go. I'm, I'm sorry. And, and then George Clooney sent me a series of emails we, back and forth. He was in London at the time. And Oliver Stone uh, gave us a statement, a very nice statement, because he had directed Jimmy several times. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it uh, he cut a, a wide swath, you know, for a man who was not, you know, a star. Yeah, 
He was not, I mean, you knew him, Gilbert, but you knew him by face. Yeah. On sight. You didn't know, you know, who he really was. And, uh, but he sure, he sure made a difference in a lot of people's lives. That's nice. I, I will. I was going to say. Uh, I will direct our uh, listeners to go to your website and read the tribute, and the Clooney stuff is really quite beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and it was a it was a a, a lovely tribute. Well, uh, so by the way, I should ex- put a cap on the story. Is I, I finished the obit, and then he lived. <laughs> yes, he rallied. <laughs> he rallied. He he didn't need hospice care. I think what they had they had either misdiagnosed something or were giving him too much medication, something of that sort. And whatever the circumstances, he was back to being his old self. And uh, I, I picked up the phone one day, and it was him on the phone, and it was. You know, I've never had a, an experience like that before, <laughs> where someone has been written off, and then bounces back. And he did. Now, you know, he was weaker. And uh, in, in, you know, the last year or two, he, he was definitely weaker and, and, and slimmer, lost weight. Uh, and he had good days and bad days. But he was essentially still our, our Jimmy. I'm glad that he got to stick around so long and, and, and affect so many people's lives. Yeah, me too. And I'm glad we do a show like this because we got to introduce him to uh, another generation. Other, sure. Whole other sure. audiences, people who knew him from the path, Mark, uh, spots or may have known him from Poltergeist, but didn't know everything else that he accomplished. Right. And so right. It's, it, it gives us a sense of pride to, uh, to get to uh, pay tribute to him in a way, as we did on yeah. this show. Which brings me to your podcast. And people you got on that show that we didn't get, like Rick Baker and Norman Lloyd. Gilbert, oh. Gilbert's going to kill himself. Oh, God. <laughs> we want Rick Baker in the worst way. Yes. But it's a, it's a great show, Leonard, and a, and a labor of love and, a, and, a, and a, a tribute to these people's lives and careers like our show is. And I have a great partner in crime, which is my daughter, Jessie. Yes. Yes. Who is not only my co-host and a, and a really good one and a lively one, and uh, she brings her point of view from a, a, a more youthful place than I reside right now. And uh, she's also become the producer. She's the one oh. who's going through the, uh, the, the, the uh, adventure of trying to book celebrities, which, as you know, can lead to a migraine. We are aware. <laughs> I wish I had a child to put to work on this show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I would have done it by now. I would say that she works cheap, but that would be a lie. Well, good for her. And I All hands on deck. I did your show in front of an audience. Oh, yes, down in daughter. Austin, Texas. Yep. Yeah. We had a great time. It's a, it's a and terrific a, and, show. And a good audience, too. Yeah, I mean, and I can't wait to listen so to Ver, called, Ver, Werner Herzog. So, oh, that, that's a lot of fun. I can't wait. Malton uh, on movies. Malton on movies. Yes. Wherever, wherever, uh, uh, wherever better uh, books are sold or something it, it, like that. It was very sweet too when you had Pacino and you were talking. You, you and Jesse were complimenting him. You were saying all of these movies, these these gifts that you've given us, pieces of time. Yeah, they're pieces of time. It was very yeah. sweet, and he seemed genuinely touched. Well, he, he he was just a dream. Yeah, and I'd interviewed him a number of times, but like years ago. In fact, I I was the only person who got him and De Niro together on camera when they made Heat. I love that picture. And that was only because they had I'd interviewed them both before. And you know, De Niro is the most reluctant television interview there is. Uh, but he's not stupid. He's just 
uncomfortable yeah. uh, talking extemporaneously on TV. And uh, But he was comfortable with his pal Pacino, and they felt comfortable with me. And so I got to interview the both of them. And here's the P.S., so I, I have, what, whatever, 15 minutes to do this in a New York hotel room. And uh, when I'm done, I, in those days before cell phones took over cameras, I threw my point-and-shoot camera to an intern who was standing nearby. I said, take a picture. So I, they were sitting in two straight-back chairs. I stood behind them, and he took one shot. And then I said, take one more. And just as he's about to press down the shutter, De Niro says, cheese. <laughs> and he cracked, he cracked us all up. So I have a really rare photo. Not only do I have a photo with Pacino and De Niro, but we're all laughing. Oh, I, I want to see that photo. You have to email it to me. I can do that. That's a classic. I can do that. The podcast is great. I, I love the Billy Bob Thornton episode. Uh, we'll plug the book. This book, too, from 2010, 151 Best Movies You've Never Seen. The new book is Hooked on Hollywood. Gil, I'm going to make Gilbert read that Bur that Burgess Meredith interview that he's oh, going yeah. <laughs> to love. Also, not to, and no spoilers, but there's some great Errol Flynn stories mm -hmm. in, in that book. He, he hated a certain group of people. <laughs> oh, uh, I think we may be familiar with. <laughs> and also the website itself, LeonardMalton.com, which uh, has great tributes to people like James Caron and Harlan Ellison and uh, Wasn't lots Errol of treasures. Flynn, I heard they nicknamed him the Great Jew Hater. Oh, I've never heard this, Gilbert. Yes. I'm not saying it's not true, but I've yeah. never heard this. <laughs> Gil yeah. Gilbert's big on hell and who was anti-Semitic in Hollywood. <laughs> we could do whole episodes about it. But I see, I am the opposite. I don't want to know because I don't want it to affect my ability to oh, watch yeah. certain old movies. Yeah, yeah, I, and, get, I get that. Uh, so I take the ignorance is bliss attitude. That's not condoning anti-Semitism. It's just, uh, as I say, ignorance is bliss. See, that's that's the reason I can't enjoy Passion of the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard, thanks for doing this and schlepping. Uh, not not a big schlep, uh, but a big reward. So, Wonderful to be talking thanks, to you guys. Thanks, man. Thank so you. So let me just wrap it by saying this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to someone who... I when I when I talked when you're on the show I forget we're doing a podcast <laughs> and I just feel like we're just sitting around talking. You ever well, that's a nice compliment. Thank you, Gil. Yes, you ever in New York much, Leonard? Because we should do one of these in person. Uh, I I'm from New York. I'm a native. I know. New I know you. Yeah. But you don't but, come back uh, much. I don't get back very often. Too bad because we could just do six and seven hours of this and. Time the time would just fly by. They they could bring in pastrami every now and then. And some brioche. Yes. <laughs> Malton on Movies is the podcast. Hooked on Hollywood is the new book. Leonard Malton's classic movie guide, also great. God, how I miss the old ones too. Uh, Le LeonardMalton.com and anything else you, he's got going on. That's right. I'm also available on the corner of Selma and Vine Street uh, on alternate Thursdays for book signing. And go to Leonard's website, read the lovely tribute to James Karen, and go, and go look up the credits of Leslie H. Martinson. 
Because <laughs> it'll blow your mind. We'll do another one, Leonard, because we didn't get to talk about fake shemp and fake stymie. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, there's hours more. There's hours hours more. more. Hours more of this stuff. Thanks, pal. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. Saturday night at the movies. Who cares what picture you see? When you're hugging with your baby in the Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. Baby, in